I've recently been uh, getting into oil painting, as those of you who follow me at all closely know. Um, and one of my best friends, Javon Lee, uh, is an amazing oil painter um, who does it professionally. And he's been very generous with sharing his process. And it's been super helpful for me. And it's been a good reminder for me of how <clears throat> when you're a professional, you do things that are the result of years, oftentimes, of winnowing down and selecting for the most effective, simplest processes. And often there's really complex uh, reasons that go into creating a simple system um, or a flexible system or a system capable of complexity but not overly complex itself. And it's easy as a professional to not articulate some of those things and Javon has done a fantastic job in the last couple of months really sharing so many of those things and I've found it very helpful and it's been a reminder to me to not assume that some of the things that I do are are known. Um, and so I wanted today to give a general walkthrough of my process uh, because I've started getting a handful of questions from people that just suggest that the last time I talked about each of these things, and I'm not sure I've ever talked about them altogether, but the last time I talked about some of these things was long enough ago that they, they didn't find it looking back through my feed. And I don't like repeating myself too often, but uh, clearly it's, it's time. And, and also I suspect that there will be some things that I say that I just haven't touched on before. So here's my spoon carving process. I start with the wood. I think a lot of people start with the tools, but I would start with the wood. Uh, I go to great lengths to source the best possible wood that I can. Um, I'm lucky enough to have some on my own land. Um, I get some from friends. I live in a part of the country where there's quite often wood just freely available at the side of the road that the power lines take down that nobody wants or is going to take and is open to the public to take. And so I am very selective about what I take of that, but, uh, but I do. And I keep a stockpile. And in general, I keep, um, I try to stay several months ahead. If I don't have several months ahead stashed at my house, I at least know exactly where I'm getting it from. So right now I'm getting cherry from a tree that came down in a tornado three years ago. And that's the other important thing is that I try to work wood that is aged, that has been lying in the log for months, if not years, depending on the species and the size of the tree, you need to work it within six months or it's good for several years. Uh, it just depends on the size of the tree, the species of the tree, where it's lying, all that. So this is a giant piece of cherry that's been in the shade of the woods and so it's Cherry lasts a long time, bigger stuff lasts a long time, with the exception of birch, and, and the fact that it's been in the shade of forest has helped as well. And slightly elevated off the ground by its branches. All of those things have helped keep this. And what you get with aged wood is, uh, 
it mellows a lot of the qualities and just makes it much easier to carve and it also allows me to carve my spoons from start to finish with one goat without having to rough them out, let them dry, and then do finishing cuts. And that's really helpful because I like the swiftness and immediacy of it. I also put a lot of effort into getting wood that is not free and as large a diameter as possible because with large diameter wood, even if you bust open a piece and there's a problem, there's enough wood that you can get around the problem. Whereas the smaller the diameter is, the more you are squeezed and the more tempted you'll be to try to fit a spoon in. And even if you, the spoon makes it and it doesn't fail, which is never a guarantee, um, you will spend much more time and much more frustration and make a worse spoon than if you just used better quality wood. So I spend a lot of time sourcing my wood. As far as tools go, I think people should get a three inch Sloyd knife, whether it's a Mora or one like I have from uh, Matt White, whatever your budget fits. Matt's prices have recently gone way up because his demand has gone way up. Um, and, uh, and I recognize that some people can't afford that. I do still think they're worth it. Um, especially since you could always sell it on the secondary market uh, and recoup your money if it wasn't what you wanted to do. But um, So I think you need a 3-inch Lloyd. I think you need uh, a sort of hmm, somewhere in between an open and a compound curve hook knife, which is the Monadnock hook that Matt makes. Um, if, uh, again, you'd have a long wait list for Matt and his prices have gone way up, uh, I really think that if I were starting over again, I'd, I would get the new Mora 164 hook and save my money and buy Matt's stuff once I had the money. You know, I'd sort of immediately get on the wait list. And in the meantime, use a Mora 164 hook. You need uh, a pruning saw. I like the Silky Excel 21 or the Silky Professional, um, both of which are folding saws with a straight edge to their blade. Um, and are relatively inexpensive. They're like 35 to 55 bucks. Um, and you're going to need an axe. And for an axe, uh, you know, if you don't have the ability to scrounge one at a tag sale, the, the, ah, uh, who makes it? Fiskers hatchet has, you know, ugly composite handle and looks weird, but it is sharp and has the right edge geometry out of the box, which is more than can be said for most of the axes out there. Um, and ultimately, uh, I use two axes, Granfors Brooks large Swedish carving axe, symmetrical grind, because I'm a lefty and that way I can pass it off to a righty, no problem. Um, and Julia Kalthoff's axe. Um, when I want something lighter. You're going to need a club. You're going to need a stump. The club you make yourself out of a section of large branch where, uh, where two branches come together, form a crotch, and that way it won't crack um, with use. And the stump, there's so many different ways to make a stump. Check out the pocketbook of axe blocks 
a free download on my website, a project I did with Lee John Phillips in the UK. Uh, has all the details you need about what goes into making a good axe block, because there's a million ways to do it, but there are some details that are universal. Um, so you need all those things. And you need uh, sharpening stuff. I sharpen with sandpaper, automotive grit sandpaper, wrapped around a wooden chunk of 2x4 and a wooden dowel. And I have used other more specific systems and I just keep finding that I get the best results with this. So I buy the sandpaper online, get a mix pack from 400 grit to 3000 grit, get yourself a chunk of clear grained 2x4 and an 8 inch length of hardwood dowel and you'll be all set. I also strop my knives and I buy my strops from Tom Scandy and Spoon Carving with Tom. Um, there's a long strop that I designed with him that is double sided that I think is the best bang for your buck that can be used braced against your chest or on a surface using the non-skid case as uh, to keep it from sliding around. And uh, Tom's strop stick is also key. And then you need a container to keep all that stuff in. I'm a big believer in keeping everything separated out because it keeps everything cleaner and keeps your spoons from getting smudged. Whenever people have said that they struggle with smudged spoons, to me it's always been uh, an indication that they're letting things rattle around too much and you're letting your sharpening stuff touch up against the handles of your knives and um, and so I prefer a toolbox. Now you can get metal toolboxes, plastic toolboxes that will work. You know, you need something that is has some different compartments that you can toss things in. You can get canvas bags that will work. I have found this wooden artist box that I had to rip out some internal dividers on and replace some of the hardware, but uh, works great and helps keep everything organized. So there's a place for everything and that's it. Um, you need a pencil, some band-aids, and a way to finish your spoons. I finish my spoons with a beeswax yojoba oil mixture. I have a tutorial in my stories highlights on Instagram about how to make it. I started using this, it was actually a lip balm that I was making for years. And I started off finishing my spoons with linseed oil like everyone else. And I just hated it. I hated the taste, I hated the smell. Um, I hated the way it made the spoons oily for a long time. Um, and I didn't feel good selling them. I felt like it, they were not what people were expecting when they got them in the mail. And I felt that way because whenever I bought something from somebody and it came finished with linseed oil, that was not what I was hoping it would be. Largely because of the linseed oil. So I used this beeswax yojoba oil mixture and, uh, and it's great. It, it, I am not looking to have a hard film on my spoons that provides protection forever. The spoon doesn't need protection. It needs protection from getting grubby when it's first new. Sometimes the treatment helps slow down the drying process in chunkier forms and that helps prevent cracking because it evens out the drying process 
by creating a film that the moisture has to get through to get out. And so it's very much like burying uh, something in, in wood shavings to slow down the drying process. And then I also use uh, burnishers and polishers because I knife finish my spoons, but I want a softer, more rounded edge in many instances. And so I started off using a smooth pebble from a lake and then I switched to a section of deer antler that I hacksawed off and sanded down to a really fine grit. And a section of, I'm sorry, a uh, pestle from a mortar and pestle. Uh, and then over time I've combined those two to make a porcelain burnisher with, in collaboration with this potter named Adam Reynolds that I offer. And I also started using a broom corn polisher made by Cynthia Main for me. Uh, both of which I offer for sale. There's wait lists for each. But I use those after I'm done carving, but before I finish the spoon to really burnish the surface. The porcelain is better at sort of softening the edges, while the broom corn is better at polishing the flat surfaces. Um, and I feel like those tools are really helpful in me achieving something that is in between a sanded and a knife and a sort of more angular knife finished finish, uh, which is what I want to go for. So those are my tools. That's what's in my toolbox, those things. Uh, let's talk about where I work. I started off just working in the kitchen and I had a stump outside and it was next to my woodshed and so I'd stash my saw and my axe in the woodshed to keep them out of the rain. That was fine, but then when I wanted to actually do some axing, if it was raining or snowing out or otherwise gross, I was rushing to get done. So then when I built a woodshed, uh, I actually ended up taking over most of the woodshed, still stored a little bit of wood in it, but I ended up taking over most of the woodshed and using that as a covered outdoor space. And that worked great. Um, and I was able to leave all my stuff out and work out there when it was uh, inclement weather and then do my carving inside in the kitchen. Uh, and let me say, carving in the kitchen is fantastic because in sweeping up after yourself, if you do a good job, you also sweep the kitchen. And the kitchen floor is always cleaner in the winter time when I'm working there than it is the rest of the year when we have to remember to sweep it on its own right. And in fact, there's always a period in the spring when I start carving outside again, when we say, why is the kitchen floor so disgusting? And we realize, oh, it's because I'm not sweeping it every day. And if your partner gives you a hard time about carving inside, that's probably an indication that you're doing a crummy job cleaning up after yourself. Because if you sweep up after yourself and sweep the rest of the room in the process, it's a win-win for everybody. And unless you're doing something silly, like carving on a carpet, I don't think they'll actually give you a hard time if you prove yourself that you're actually cleaning up after yourself. I think my wife was skeptical as well. It's been so many years now that I can't remember, but I've always been thoughtful about cleaning up after myself, never left stuff um, for later. Recently, I have created an, uh, a workshop for myself um, up from the house. That's been really nice for me to have a place for 
everything to live as a business. But if you're not doing it as a business, I don't think you need to have a separate space. If you do, that's great. But if you don't, who cares? The nice thing about spoon carving is that you can do it in a bunch of different places. I do think having your stump in some sort of covered shed outside is helpful. But having to have it uh, inside is not, you know, not something that has to happen. Um, and, uh, what was I going to say about that? Okay, so my, I also just want to reiterate that I have been carving professionally for years now and have not had a shop. So I don't think having a shop should be the first step that you do if you're trying to go professional. I think uh, even doing it on the cheap like I did, I built this thing for 1200 bucks, um, got a lot of stuff for free, made a lot of sort of unorthodox choices to keep the cost down. Um, it's got greenhouse plastic for two of the sides. It's uninsulated. It has a little wood stove I got for free. Uh, and stove pipe that I got for free, not the regular kind, but the insulated metal bestest kind, which is super expensive. And so if you were going to build a shop, unless you just have the money to do it and want the space to do it, I don't think it's necessarily justified in a business until you're at a point where you feel like your business has outgrown the spaces that you're using that are just part of your house. <clears throat> I also have an outdoor space under a canvas tarp um, that I think is fantastic and is probably a great choice for people who want to work outside and need some covered space and aren't going to build themselves a woodshed or otherwise have like a garage or something that they could use. You do need to know some rope work. And I would say that... Um, I, I wanted it to be canvas because I didn't want just a plastic tarp that would thrash around and break up in the wind. I found that canvas tarps broke up in the wind as well. And so I reached out to a fellow spoon carver, uh, Erica George Ackless, in uh, Port Townsend, Washington, who's a sailmaker. And I used to be a sailor, and so I knew what I was asking for. And I said, you know, I need a tarp that's going to have reinforced everything so that it can be up on this windy hillside and not be destroyed. And she made me one, and it's been fantastic. So a um, fraction of the cost of building anything more permanent, you get yourself a covered space, um, and it actually lasts. So if you're looking to, for an outdoor space, I can't recommend her highly enough. Her prices are very reasonable, and the quality of her work is impeccable. Um, for any of these details, if someone can't figure out where I've gotten things, and usually if you search hashtags, I will say I've started using hashtags on social media as a way for people to figure out these details without uh, and dive into them more without necessarily needing to ask me where to find them. So for all things related to my shed build and the tarp and all that, I've been using the hashtag Green Woodworking Shed. Anytime I have tips about being a professional spoon carver, I use the hashtag professional spoon carver or spoon carving business. And for tips on spoon carving in general, um, I've been using the hashtag spoon carving tips and greenwood spoon carving. Uh, those are two different hashtags. 
So those are some resources that you can check out uh, where I've, I've started collating information under those hashtags. So again, the point of this, and I'm two thirds of the way through my walk, so I'm not going to use this to, as, uh, as a, sorry, here's my process kind of thing. The point of this is to deliver the details that sometimes get lost for people. So, uh, when I am, have a bunch of things to carve, I tend to work one by one. So rather than carve in batches, I find it easier mentally to make a blank and bring it all the way through to being finished, um, rather than carve it, uh, in as part of a larger batch because every piece of wood is different and even if you've controlled for as many variables as you can it's the same shape it's the same whatever you're using a template yada yada uh, I have found that there just there's always going to be some subtle little thing you know a wiggle in the grain a knot here a way that it's lined up slightly different there and every time you pick up a piece and put it down and pick up a new one you have to remember all the details about that new one. And it's more exhausting and feels more chaotic than if you just take a piece all the way through. You don't get that flow state when you work in batches the way you do when you work piece by piece, I have found. And it's also not as flexible for finishing your day. I have two kids. There are some days when my days end unexpectedly early because something happens and I need to deal with it. Or, uh, just the day sort of things work out and I get close to the end of my day. And if I'm working in a batch and I realize, oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to finish this batch or it's going to be a close thing. then that whole last hour of the day when I'm frantically trying to finish up stuff feels really different than if I've been finishing things all along throughout the day and I get to the last hour of my day and I'm like, all right, let's see if I can bust out one more. That feels fundamentally different than feeling like the day's a failure if I don't get all of these things finished. Usually I get to the end of my day and the day's already won. I already hit whatever target I was aiming for. And I'm just seeing how much, by how much I can surpass it. Fundamentally different in how it feels. And so I would highly recommend that you don't work in batches. I do find it useful to bust up a bunch of wood all at once. If I'm making a bunch of blanks for other people. And depending on how much wood you have access to, you might find it helpful to bust up wood into billets and store it in your freezer as billets, or bust it up and process it into blanks all in one go. You know, make yourself 10 blanks in a, in a, at a whack. Um, and, And that might be a better fit for you and then store them in the freezer, just in the plastic bag in a freezer until you need to carve them and then run them under tap water for, for a few minutes or soak them in a bowl of water. If that's the case, if you're making a bunch of blanks uh, all at one go, I do find it helpful to bust up my logs into chunks that are sort of the size of two or three billets just so I can see what the grain is gonna be, and I can plan out where 
I'm gonna split it next to get the pieces that I need. Sometimes I need very specific pieces, and so I'm looking for them within the log. And if I just go and do one and then do another one, it doesn't always work out as well as if I bust up a whole section of a log, let's say a quarter of a log, and like a quarter of a round, and, and then try and get the four or five spoons that I need out of that piece, then I know, okay, yep, these are all good clean pieces. I'm probably gonna be able to get all of the pieces I need from this and I'm good to go. But if I hit some unexpected surprise, I wanna know that sooner rather than later. Because maybe I need to go line up more wood. Maybe it's as easy as just busting out another section with them all, but maybe I need to change my plan for the day. So I don't want surprises. And so the last point of surprises is when you bust open a log, because sometimes there's stuff in it that you didn't anticipate and you need to change your plan. So I try and do that all at once and get a sense of how's the wood splitting, how's it, is it gonna give me any trouble? Um, and I always make sure that I have that backup stash so that if I need it, I can get into another clear section and I'm not tempted to try and squeeze a spoon out of uh, a piece of wood that I really shouldn't be trying. <clears throat> One of the things that I think is a really important tactic that people don't employ often enough is the plastic bag. If I am done with a blank and I'm making a bunch of blanks, I will always put it in a plastic bag right away. If I'm carving a spoon and I am less than halfway through, I will always keep it in a plastic bag. And that's because you wanna keep the surface moisture within the spoon for as long as possible because it makes everything easier. And if you are cavalier about that, you're gonna make your life really hard because even if there's still moisture deep within the blank, your knife has to deal with the hard, hardened, air-hardened exterior of the blank. And by the time you chew your way through that, well, the next layer in is hardened again. So carving successfully is about managing moisture content. You wanna uh, curate wood that has the right low amount of moisture content, but then you want to hold as much of that moisture content as possible by using a plastic bag and get yourself a process where you are carving as swiftly as possible until you get down to a level where it doesn't matter. Even if it air hardens, it's so delicate that it's relatively easy to carve anyways. But especially when you're in that initial roughing out stage with the knife, you want to get through that as swiftly as possible. For some people that means using a draw knife and you can clamp the piece in any number of ways, using a clamp on a workbench or a spoon mule or a shaving horse, um, and using a draw knife to get down through that layer and get yourself closer to a more delicate surface that you can carve even as it dries out. A lot of times people leave their spoon blanks way too thick and they focus too much on getting tight to the line they've drawn and honestly, that doesn't matter nearly as much as making it the right thickness, meaning for most people, more delicate, more, less thick. And that will do the most towards helping your process be fast, which will help keep the moisture, you working in a sort of fresh area of moisture content, which will in turn, come on, Will, which will in turn make it so that, um, 
so that you're actually having fun and not struggling with a, a beast of a thing. The last thing I'm going to leave you with, uh, as far as my process goes, is to not be afraid of sharpening. Lean into learning how to sharpen. Yes, you might ruin a tool, but, and this is a reason to get a Mora 106 and a Mora 164 before you get a, a, a fancy knife from someone like Matt, is that uh, if you educate yourself about sharpening and don't just assume that you know or you know read half of what somebody says and then say oh, okay I'm gonna go for it but actually find somebody like myself who lays out a system step by step and draws you through all the setbacks and things you might struggle with read it first and then practice it and be thoughtful about the feedback you're getting when you're practicing it you're gonna figure it out it is not hard to sharpen well it doesn't take a long time but there are details that matter. And so it's one of those things where it is about you educating yourself. But by far, the thing that's gonna hold you back the most is if you don't learn how to sharpen. No amount of stropping will make up for not being confident with your sharpening. And you're gonna need to sharpen. I sharpen every 10 to 15 spoons. So generally once a week unless I'm carving a whole bunch and then I'll do it twice a week. And to sharpen two sloids and two hooks takes me 40 minutes, so 10 minutes each. It does not have to take a long time, but you do need to know how to do it. That's it for now. Let me know if you find this helpful. I'm happy to do another round uh, further into the process. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk tomorrow.